Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And sending out a very special cheerio to Peter, who's at home, and also to Rob as well, who can't be here for the show. And yeah, it's still stage four restrictions in Victoria, and we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And quite a lot of the time on the show, we've been discussing how people from vulnerable communities have been affected by um, the measures of COVID-19, and in particular... We have dedicated a lot of time to Aboriginal deaths in custody, which was, of course, happening way before the pandemic. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Paul Silver, who is the nephew of David Dungay, and he died in custody in Long Bay Jail. The Dungudi man from Kempsey died in Sydney's Long Bay Jail on the 29th of December 2015 after guards rushed his cell to stop him eating biscuits dragged him to another cell, then held him face down and had him injected with a sedative. And I should say at this point that this audio today um, is going to be giving audio images about Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal people that have died. So before um, David died, he said he, um, he couldn't breathe and... Paul has actually started up a campaign about this and we're going to be speaking to him about that. And in fact, we interviewed David's beautiful mum last year sometime. We, we did interview Latona and we, we spoke with her for about half an hour. After Paul, we will be speaking with Tiffany Overall from Youth Law and we're going to be speaking to her about some controversial proposed COVID detention powers um, that, that are ho- hoping um, that I'm hoping are not going to be going through Parliament. They're being debated at the moment. Under the COVID ominous bill, uh, there's going to be quite a few draconian measures that are going to be introduced. So we'll be speaking to her about that shortly. But first up, let's let's now speak with Paul, who actually participated in an event on Saturday um, with Mel's at Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Um, in regards to the right to protest. And I'll see you soon. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. 
You've heard about the annexation of Palestinian land, but now join Free Palestine Melbourne and West Bank tour guide Iheb Rafri for a virtual tour of the West Bank. From Jerusalem to Jericho and up the Jordan Valley, see what annexation means to the social and economic life of affected Palestinians and hear directly from local farmers and villagers about what it means for them. The tour will be followed by a Q&A session. The facts on the ground. Annexation from Jerusalem to the Jordan Valley virtual tour. Wednesday the 7th of October at 7.30pm. Register at the events page of fpmelbourne.org. That's fpmelbourne.org. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And I'm hoping that we can now welcome Paul to the program. Hi, Paul. G'day, how you going? Great to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Paul, I'm wondering if you could just start off just by um, telling listeners what land you're from. Yeah, so my name's Paul Silver. I'm from Kempsey, Dungari land. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Paul. I'm not sure whether you heard, but we did actually interview Latona, um, David's mum, on this show quite some time ago now. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I was I was listening in on that um, interview as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she, she's an amazing woman, that one. She's very determined yeah. with a lot of courage. Yeah, definitely, definitely a strong woman um, to get through all of this, all of this stuff. Um, yeah, you, you just want me to start off, or...? Yeah, actually, yeah. So I'm going to leave it up to you how you want to start off, but I'm wondering... I just felt that it was really important. Seven minutes on the panel on Saturday really wasn't enough to really do justice to David, which is why I've invited you onto the show. And I'm, could you just start off talking about David and, and what happened? Yeah, so David Dungay Jr., age 26, was housed in uh, Long Bay Correctional Facility in... 2015, uh, December, to 29th of December, uh, 2015, um, at approximately 2:42 p.m. on the 29th of December, 15, um, David Dungay Jr. was eating a pack of biscuits, uh, safely secured in his cell. Um, uh, corrective officers decided that the biscuits was going to do harm to his. Um, to his medical conditions, um, so they decided to call in a IAT team or riot, riot team to um, remove the biscuits um, from him. Instead, they they stormed the cell um, with shields and batons and tasers, um, pinned David Dungay Jr. to the ground in cell 71. Um, he continuously begged for his life and continuously screamed that he could not breathe and showed all signs and symptoms of um, positional asphyxia, which is when you're asphyxiated on the ground um, by excessive force. So he showed all signs and symptoms. Um, a short time later, they escorted him from cell 71 into cell 77 uh, when he was placed in a prone position again. Um, he was still continuously yelling that he could not breathe. Um, despite his plead for help, guards didn't hold back and pinned him in cell 71. Um, a few minutes later, a nurse injected 
David with a powerful sedative and less than two minutes later, um, while screaming he can't breathe, he took his last breath and tragically um, died at the hands of corrective officers and justice health staff. Uh, since since the um, since the tragic event occurred, um, our family has you know been reached out by um, some lovely people, um, just to name a few: Patrick Gibson, um, Elizabeth Jarrett, uh, Raul Bazzi. Um, you know, there's George Newhouse, just to name a few. There's many more out there. Um, but you know, we started doing protests. Um, in and around Sydney, so at the place of where David Dungay Jr. was tragically murdered, uh, we, you know, we organised protests in at the Long Bay Correctional Facility, also in Town Hall, etc. Um, you know, back in 2015, 16, and 17, um, our family marched the streets with 20 to 40 people, you know, demanding justice for David, and you know. The attendance of people has gradually climbed over over the years. You know, it's now 2020, and if you look back on the 6th of June in that town hall, we had a we had a massive turnout in regards to the um, action with what happened with George Floyd in the US, um, as it was very similar with the death of David Dungay Jr. You know, both showed signs of positional asphyxia, and both was held down in prone position. So we we got a good turnout from that, and you know, despite the um, the government's call um, and to say that it was prohibited, um, you know, we still got over 20,000 people to attend in town hall um, to demand the justice for David Dungay Jr., you know, solidarity into the USA for George Floyd and also, you know, just to mark the Aboriginal deaths that has happened here since the Royal Commission, um, you know, no recommendations have been implemented to um, prevent this stuff from happening. Um, and, yes, it's very appalling that, you know, the government doesn't really step to the plate and actually put a stop to these deaths. Um, but, yeah, we got a good turnout on the 20, uh, on the 6th of June um, in at the town hall where, you know, people from all walks of life and nationality showed out um, in support for, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and for the justice for Aboriginal testing custody here in Australia. So, you know, more people is aware of it. And, um, you know, we moved on from the 6th of June and the 28th of July we attended one in the domain where... You know, upon arrival, we had, due to the pandemic, we had to put um, COVID safety strategies in place. So we put a COVID safety um, stool up at the start of the, at the entrance of the domain in Sydney. And upon arrival, we witnessed um, New South Wales police actually shutting down that COVID safe um, stool. So, you know, in my eyes, that's... Yeah, yeah. So it was actually... Uh, and he said that the protest was prohibited, but if they're concerned about the current pandemic, I just, you know, I don't see why there are reasons why it was to shut down that safe school. Um, you know, so we we sort of kept kept moving into the Sydney do, Sydney domain, and um, arrests were made. We were, walked in with a group of less than twenty, and. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say arrests were made. People were detained and let go with fines due to the current health orders. Um, although the attendees on that day was not breaking any current health orders as we was in a group of 20, um, 20 people. And yeah, I mean, media. It's, it's pretty unacceptable, isn't it, that you've got thousands of people going to football games and yet protesting is not considered an essential activity. 
Yeah, yeah, well, exactly, you know, like, we talk about the football, we've got thousands of people going to football games, soccer games, um, you know, the local weekend market, your local Westfield shopping centre, um, you know, they've all got exemptions, and I can't see why the freedom to protest um, should not, I, I believe we should be entitled to an exemption, um, it is our basic human rights to protest, um, you know, and and it means a lot to our family, the Dungay family, to protest and myself personally, um, due to the fact we're stuck through, so to speak, the white man's law. We're stuck in we're stuck in the court process, and we have not received any accountability nor justice out of that. So you know, our, our steps are like we have been for the past five years, which is taken to the streets and demanding the justice for David Dungay Jr. And also demanding the systematic change in the prison so it doesn't happen to another family and traumatises another. Although it, it did happen shortly after the death of David Dungay Jr., um, Tane Chatfield was uh, was killed in Kenworth Correctional Facility um, not long after the death of David Dungay Jr. So, you know, these, these Aboriginal deaths in custody, it's sad to say they're not going to stop and more families are going to be traumatised until... There is accountability for the for the previous deaths in custody to show that their colleague can't get away with it. Um, you know what I mean? It, with an Aboriginal death in custody, they're ninety nine point they're hundred percent likely to get away with the murder of an Aboriginal person in custody, um, and they're not being held accountable. So their colleague see, oh, okay, then well they're getting away with the murder, the brutality, and assault against inmates. So. You know what? I'm going to do it as well, and I'll get away with it. The, the government will protect me, and that's what's happening. The government's protecting these, these, so to say, scumbags, and it's traumatising families. Like we've got David Dungay Jr.'s birthday, his 31st birthday, coming up on Friday, the 2nd of October. Um, while these corrective officers sit at home, and you know, or they're still working um, in the place of where they've taken someone's life. You know, they're. They're out there enjoying their lifestyle while our family basically has to grieve and and still still demand that justice on a date when we should be celebrating it with our loved ones. But you know, we're gonna be out demanding we're gonna be out demanding that, you know, there's accountability um, for for everyone involved with David Dungay Junior's death and we're gonna be out to say, you know, we want systematic change within the prison, um, on a day where we should be sitting down and singing happy birthday and hugs and kisses everywhere, but, you know, there's going to be hugs and kisses, but that's because we're all going to be crying due to the fact of, you know, the actions of other people five years ago, and it, it's still very raw to me personally. You know, it's got, I've got his 31st birthday coming up. It seems like he was only killed yesterday. Um, it's very true, know, it's, and, and in fact, legal expert, experts are calling for investigations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like To be reopened. Yeah, so we've stuck through the coronial inquiry and, like I said, due to the fact of no justice and no accountability against the involved, um, our beautiful legal team has um, passed it on to a criminal barrister, Philip Bolton, I believe his name is, and he, um, based on the evidence that he has uncovered, he believes that uh, corrective officers can be charged with with assault and or manslaughter. So, you know, our main call is we're, ter- we're calling on the uh, Attorney-General of New South Wales to call on the Department of Police Prosecution um, to undertake an investigation into the death of David Dungay Jr. We're also calling on um, WorkSafe New South Wales. With WorkSafe New South Wales, we requested them two times to undertake an investigation as the death happened and occurred in a workplace. Um, 
the two times we requested that, both times we were rejected um, due to it, due to it as it's been through a coronial inquiry. Um, you know, it states in their policies if you lose a finger in a workplace, it's investigatable. Um, they will investigate yeah. it to the full extent. Um, you know, but they're not willing to investigate someone that's begging for their life and had taken their last last breath in a workplace. Um, they're not willing to investigate that. So, in my eyes, David Dungay Jr.'s life is no more worse than a finger, as I see it. In the, so in the eyes Dungay of worst died in South Wales. That's right. So David Dungay died in 2015. And then from what I can gather here, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, there's been an investigation into the death um, from his family's calls for accountability in 2016 and then 2018 and then 2019 and then the coronial findings were in 2019. But there really wasn't much that was found, was there? No, no, there wasn't much that was found. It was basically blamed on all organisation failure. So we come to that, uh, back to that prone position being held down and being exposed to positionless asphyxia. So my understanding of the coronial inquiry is because all of the corrective officers involved was not um, adequately trained in positionless asphyxia, um, they basically blamed the organisation. So some of the recommendations was, you know, they need to improve training. What's that, sorry? You still there, Paul? We may wait, because um, Paul may Why be able to hear... Hello? There? Yeah, sorry. Oh, good. You still there? Yep. Yeah, go yep, on. You cut here. out there for a bit. So you were talking about the coronial findings. Yeah, so so the coronial, the coronial findings was basically... Um, inadequate training. So the officers involved was not trained in positional asphyxia. So what happens with positional asphyxia is if you're held down in a prone position, it asphyxiates your your body and your heart. So the cause of death found out of the inquiry was a cardiac arrhythmia. Um, contributing factors was a cardiac arrhythmia. Uh, the, the cause of death was a cardiac ar arrhythmia yeah. caused by contributing factors, which is other other medical conditions, the, his diabetes, his mental health, the, mm. the um, medication he was on. But also at the bottom of that, at the bottom of the final findings was um, use of force was also a contributing factor. Um, so David Dungay Jr. lived with these medical conditions most of his life. Um, I believe if you take the use of force out, David Dungay Jr. would still be alive today. Um, so if the use of force was a contributing factor, I can't see how and why those guards was not um, criminally investigated in regards to this tragic death. Absolutely, um, yep. And then there was Wayne Fallon Morrison as well, who died in in similar circumstances. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and it's it, it's appalling. And yeah, I just can't see why why um, none of the recommendations from the ninety one. Uh, Royal Commission has not been implemented today. Um, you know, um, was there a point in having it? I don't believe so. They really didn't do anything with it, with the um, outcome of it. That's um, right. But, yeah, you know, um, my family and me personally is going to continue to fight um, for the justice for David Dungay Jr. and for systematic change within the prison system and 
you know, I'm going to walk beside other families as well that um, come exposed to uh, Aboriginal death in custody um, because I actually know, you know, we know their pain, we know how they feel and you just become vulnerable. You don't know what to do, you don't know who to reach out to at times like that because people have, don't really experience it. To be honest, um, you know, I didn't really know anything about Aboriginal death in custody. I never thought a thing existed until it happened to my family. I never I thought... I never thought a thing of such would exist. People being killed in custody by, you know, by people that are supposed to um, look after you with a duty of care, what they what they sign up for, and you know that's not what's happening. They get you in there and they they basically treat you like an animal and say that they own you. And you know, if you talk back to them or simply trying to eat your biscuits because you know you're having a sugar low, um, they still want to control the situation, and you know it's highly based on the colour of your skin as well. Um, you know, like just for my general general views and what I've experienced, um, you know, a law enforcement officer will, you know, control the situation based on the colour of your skin. Uh, for example, if a non-Indigenous inmate is not complying, I believe they would only get three or four officers there. But if it's an Aboriginal person, they get the whole team there, which is five to eight officers. So... And you know, that's actually it, it true because there's a big history, isn't there, of deaths in custody? Yeah, exactly. You know, and 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 I would have seen around, like in the media, in the media and stuff. Um, you know, you get those people that comment on there, and all people would say, "What about the non-indigenous deaths that happen in custody?" Um, you know, yeah, I have heard about a few, yeah. um, but a high rate of Aboriginal deaths in custody since the nineteen. 91 Royal Commission, you know, it's just unacceptable and, you know, I believe it's, it's another way of genocide and another way of um, the stolen generation and I've always said this for the, since my first march back in 2015 and instead of killing us out in masses and out in groups like they used to back back in when we was invaded, they're simply doing it behind doors and, and, and the government's simply allowing them to get away with it and that's why why these Aboriginal deaths in custody are still continuing. Like I said, there's no accountability. Um, and it's it also about to... police, police investigating police, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, we, we, we always said that if police investigate police, there's not going to be any outcome for for what's being investigated, you know. And, and once, once I realised that police was investigating corrective officers, you know, they're both government agencies, my view is they need to get an independent independent task force in. So when stuff like this happens to the First Nations people, it needs to be investigated completely independently and like thoroughly investigated. Um, like the statistics and, and, and it's, the statistics show for itself. There's been no... No-one's been criminally charged, convicted and put in jail for an Aboriginal death in custody. You know, the, the statistics speak for itself. You know, the number, you add the numbers up, they speak for themselves. And it's, I always put it back down to, you know, the police investigating police, the government not pulling their finger out of their backside and holding people accountable for their actions. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, as they say, who really cares? It's just the First Nations people getting killed off again. Paul, it's been really great having you, and I'm so glad that you were able to speak in detail about, about David Dungo Jr., and I'm wondering if there are any final comments you want to make. Yeah, no, you know, just thanks for having having me on the show. And you know, like I said, you 
you know, you will see my face out there much more, um, you know, due to the current pandemic. Um, it's sort of slowed down a bit due to that, but, you know, we're willing to come back out again and, um, you know, scream out for justice for David Dungo Jr., stop Aboriginal deaths in custody and, you know, basically justice for, and, you know, we call everyone out there to come and support us when we do, um, all people from walk to life. But, yeah, at the end of the day, um, we, we need justice. Um, and we need accountability for the people involved with murdering David Dungay Jr. And just one final question: what, Where do you, where do we go from here, Paul? What, what's going to happen? Aren't they going so, to reopen so, it? So we're we're called we're calling on the DPP now, Department of Public Prosecution, to actually take that advice from the criminal barrister Philip Bolton to actually investigate now, um, to actually criminally investigate due to the fact that we have that information. So, yeah, our next steps are basically, you know, keeping keeping the pressure on the Department of Public Prosecutions, the Attorney-General, and WorkSafe in New South Wales to undertake the investigations. Um, you know, that's all we can do at the moment. We've stuck through that lawful process and there's no accountability. So our determination is to take to the streets in mass numbers and demand that the Department of Police Prosecutions uh, WorkSafe New South Wales and the Attorney General pushes for all these investigations to happening, or you know they're going to see more Black Lives Matter signs and more Justice for Junior signs on the streets um, with mass numbers, and you know that's simply what we're calling for. It's not hard hard to um, get people investigated. Um, you know, I can't see a problem with getting someone investigated for murdering someone. Well, you know, I'm really quite appalled that given all that. CTT footage, CTV footage, and nothing was achieved. Yeah, well, exactly, you know, and there was publication orders put on them so the public couldn't see that. You know, I was exposed to everything that was on the offer in the evidence side of things, and I will say, at the end of one footage, the handheld camera, one of the guards say, oh, don't worry, boys, um, the ambulance have got him now, and start giggling about it. So, you know, it shows these guys are really not professional within their job. Um... You know, the lack of CPR that was provided by the nurses and doctors that the publication order was put on for the public not to see was appalling. A first aider would actually do better than them. Um, you know, coming down to... They try to put a breathing tube down his throat to um, extract all of the saliva and biscuits that he was chewing on. They actually shoved it down with the safety cap on. And I believe is once they shoved that down with the safety cap on, um, they actually compressed it all together. So, you know... The justice health side of things where nurses and doctors stepped in was appalling, but as I always say, I'm not here... I'm not, the justice health staff did take a big part in it, but David Dungay Jr. would not be in that position if it wasn't for um, corrective officers taking it upon themselves to enter the cell. It was found in the coronial inquiry. There was no medical emergency to extract him from the cell, and there was nor there was a security emergency, so... If they would have just sat there and let David Dungay Jr. eat his biscuits, um, I wouldn't be having this interview right now and we wouldn't have been marching the streets for the past five years and continue marching. Um, But, you know, it is what it is and this is just what we've got to do to get the justice for David Dungay Jr. and so he could begin the rest because he's not resting at the moment and I could feel that. Absolutely he's not resting. How, How can he be resting with all this? Exactly. Paul, thank you so much, and and also a shout out to Paddy Gibson who who helped Paul to come onto the show. Yep, no worries. He's a beautiful man, Paddy. He's great. Thanks for having me, guys. Anytime you want to chat, give me a call. 
Take care of yourself, Paul. Thanks you too. a lot. Thanks, bye. Bye bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website, 3cr.org.au, or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. For the first time, the Australian Friends of Palestine Association will hold the annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture via Zoom. On the 17th of October, former Western Australian MP Melissa Park will present her lecture, The Conscious Pariah, How Distortions of Facts, Contortions of Logic and Assassinations of Character are Used Against Critics of Israel While It Poses as the Plucky Democracy and the Eternal Victim. For free registration, visit www.afopa.com.au. That's www.afopa.com.au. Australian Friends of Palestine Association is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Do and Time show. And we're going to be speaking shortly with Tiffany Overall from Youth Law. And she's going to be sharing with us, in particular, how young people are going to be affected by controversial proposed COVID detention powers and the Human Rights Law Centre has called on the Victorian Government to amend proposed legislation currently before the Victorian Parliament to remove controversial powers to detain people based on what they might do. Executive Director Hugh D. Kretzner said these proposed new powers are vague, prone to abuse and are simply not needed. There is an existing power contained in the legislation. The proposed new powers would allow an authorised officer to detain someone based on what the officer thinks they might do. So to talk about the bill, we're going to be speaking now with Tiffany. Hello, Tiffany. Welcome to the program. Yes, hi. It's lovely to have you. So before you start, um, just to make it clear to listeners... Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. 
These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say... Yeah, nah. Yen Pasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. I'm hoping that we've got Tiffany Overall back from Youth Law. As I was saying, yeah. we're going to be talking about the new powers, and I just gave a little bit of an intro before. Tiffany, are you there? Yes, I am, Marissa. Sorry about that. I think there might have been gremlins in my phone or something. Sorry oh, about that. Oh, it sounded like gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, first of all, that's okay. Would you just be able to talk to us about what's happening with this bill? What's it called? It's called the Om- Omnibus Bill? Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, nicknamed the Omnibus, Omnibus Bill. Um, and look, really, it's basically part of the bill. Uh, it's a bill to extend the various initiatives that were introduced back in April, um, really as part of the response to COVID, um, to enable all sorts of changes to happen in um, you know, court processes, child protection processes, just a whole raft of processes um, and to extend some of those sorts of adaptions and initiatives for another six months. Um, you may have remembered in the media there was a bit of outrage and a bit of pushback from a lot of people when government initially wanted it for 12 months. They agreed on six months. So that's that's the bill that's coming through. But I think what's caught a lot of us um, by surprise is part of this COVID-19 Omnibus Emergency Measures Act is um, they want to sort of extend powers um, of what they call authorised officers, um, which can be a whole range of um, people appointed to that position to exercise preventative detention for people that they um, think might be in breach of a um, restriction um, or they are in you know potentially in close contact with someone who might might have contracted the virus so it just it's just gone that, that extra subjective Tiffany. it 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 is very subjective um, Marissa that's part of the issue that we just um, I suppose, from our perspective at Youth Law, the way we've been sort of observing the way um, police members and or protective service officers have already been exercising their discretion in this place, it's it's a little bit questionable at times. Like it's um, so we're just very very concerned that you just even um, expand uh, the, the powers they can make in that place, and it can be very subjective, and that they do bring all sorts of biases to their roles, like. Arguably, we all do. Uh, just that just doesn't seem appropriate. It really is going much further than uh, any of us would have ever 
expected? I I would say that there are already there are already increased police powers, or indeed, the state of emergency already has measures in place. Mm, mm, Yeah, that's right. So, exactly, there's there's already um, powers being given um, in in a whole range of areas to enforce some of these. COVID restrictions, um, and so this does does really seem like a disproportionate, unnecessary extension. Um, I think a lot of people have just been echoing the cry of, you know, where's the evidence or, or need for that? You know, we appreciate that if, you know, someone's breaching, you want yeah. to be on top of that and you want to control that, but this just... Um, yeah, it just seems very, very over the top, as I said. Because it's really interesting, Tiffany, so the, the government's trying to expand, for example, who would be able to use the powers. So mm. when they say authorised officers, mm. would that mean also not public servants? Like, people can dob each other in, right? Yeah, that's right. It's inclusive of public servants. It's also inclusive of different community members. Um, not all community members. It's not like citizens' arrest as such, but um, or a range of community members could be nominated. Um, and then obviously, yeah, police and protective service officers would be yeah part of the mix of authorised officers. So it's... Yeah, and that just means it's even harder to to regulate. And and how do how does anyone supervise these just very um, significant decisions being made? Um, you know, to to detain people. Um, yeah, I just it's pretty outrageous. How would you how would you determine, for example, whether someone has been a close contact of COVID of someone with COVID nineteen? And then how would you actually get the proof that people have contracted coronavirus? Isn't that really up to the the tracing, the, the tracing measures? Yeah, maybe they're the only one. That's right. So I think it's more the, sub, the subjective element probably more comes into just in deciding whether or not the, the authorised officer thinks that there's going to be a potential breach of a restriction. Um Thanks. You know, you know. Well, yeah. So effectively, if uh, they had the conversation with someone who basically was said that they were going to, I don't know, dis- disregard the self quarantining, for example, that they were going to go out into the community even though they're supposed to be home for fourteen days, and if if that person had heard that and suspected that's what they were going to do, then they might be in a position to, you know, use this power if they happen to be an authorised officer, for example. Um, it's not actually based yeah. on the act of going out and breaking quarantine. It could just be on the suspicion that that's what's going to happen, for, the, for example. I mean, it is true that there are some people that have actually breached their quarantine and... Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not... Yeah. However, <laughs> however, I mean, there are already measures in place for that and, and mm, I suppose mm. also there's, there are also the major... Quarantine breaches that have happened in hotels, yes, and a lot yes. of errors that have been made by the Victorian government. Yes, so, yes. Do you know what I mean? And but, but yeah, it like I do. Was looking at expanding people, 
to, to monitor people in their own homes, to detain people that, that are meant to be right. isolating in their homes, right? Could be how it's could be how it's played out. I mean, you know, it's really hard to know. I haven't sort of thought through all the possible no, no, that's scenarios. Okay. I suppose I'm just letting listeners, you know, yeah, yeah, speaking yeah. about this to, to educate listeners and just to have Absolutely. a little bit of a discussion about it because mm. it sounds foolish. It sounds absolutely mm. foolish. In that, and and given that. Yeah. Um, we we're now in a position where, thankfully, you know, the current restrictions and the current stage of lockdown have got us in a much better position, and numbers are so so impressively reduced. Why, in that environment, would we be even contemplating such a punitive, drastic sort of measure? Obviously, what we've been doing, we've we've moved on from the hotel quarantine debacle and and we're actually tracking really well as a community why would we need to throw something like this in the mix right now i don't i don't understand <laughs> like this is obviously just for the pand- duration of the pandemic right Presumably. well for it would um, for the duration of the this bill which is supposedly you know hoping to cover the duration of the pandemic so it would it would from the time it was passed, it would be for another six months. So, assuming it, assuming it went through the um, upper house uh, in mid October, we might have it in place by late October. Then it'd be six months from then. I hope it doesn't happen because this bill yeah. does not strike the right balance. No, I think it's it does not strike the right balance. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And also, um, how in in your position. Um, at youth law, mm. how do you think, or do you think that this bill would affect vulnerable communities? And if so, how? Yeah. So obviously, you know, we we're trying to get ahead around what that could look like. I mean, I suppose most of our thinking to date has been about that power potentially be given to. Protective Service Officers and Police. We haven't even really thought about what it could look like if it was given to other other groups such as other community members or public servants. But but generally, yeah, we we just we are concerned that they will be targeted in some way or disproportionately um, oh. impacted by by a bill of this nature. Um, you know, often we see um, some sort of Bias, I suppose you could say, of some authority figures in relation to the way they they deal with children and young people. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, we saw from the crime stats released last week that that nearly half of the COVID fines that have been issued have been issued to under 25 year olds. So they are the ones, you know, possibly more likely to be impacted. Um, so fines have been. You mean fines? To do with COVID um, with nineteen, yeah, like fines that. generally. There's been about six thousand of them, and wow. yeah, just over forty percent of them have been issued to under twenty-five year olds. So, if we go on that, then we we would have grave concern that this particular preventative detention power might also be uh, more commonly used against young people than other age groups, and that obviously inclusive of a whole range of vulnerable members of our community, um, and also just what does this detention look like? You know, um, usually there's some pretty strict rules around um, 
detaining a young person. We're just wondering what that looks like for a young person um, under this particular provision. So there's lots of unanswered questions, I suppose, um, at this stage for us, Marissa. We we don't really have um, that all the clarity we would want. There's a lot of questions we're trying to get answered. Um, but at the moment, yeah. I suppose we we're just really hoping that it doesn't go through in this form. It just doesn't seem necessary. I really hope um, not. Because, and I mean, this is why I wanted to invite you onto the show because it's always good to have a preliminary discussion about this mm, thing, mm, in, in particular. Yeah. Because yeah. And look, I mean, I suppose it's um, important for us to, to keep perspective that there are other parts of the omnibus bill that are necessary. Uh, you know, we're not we're not saying that all elements of the bill sure. aren't warranted. We're just saying this particular add-on to the, within the bill is is what's unnecessary. So if they carve that out and and go ahead and extend some of these other initiatives um, that have been working quite well in the community, that's we've got no problem with that. It's just this this particular add-on power of preventative detention that is uh, concerning. But what is confusing though is that there's already powers in here. Why, why would you need an additional bill? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know, because they already can be, that's absolutely true, they can be fined for these sorts of offences anyway. Um, it's just taking it that next step, isn't it, to actually detain them. Um, I'm deeply I, um, concerned, actually. Pardon? I, as a radio broadcaster and also as a human rights activist, I'm deeply concerned about this entire... This, this yeah, yeah. In particular Look, about authorising... Tell me what you think of this, about authorising members of the community to dob each other in and to snitch, mm, basically. I'm going to mm, use the word snitch. I know... Mm, I, I'm probably... I, I don't mean... I'm not here to be melodramatic, but it is snitching. Sure. And, and it's, it's basically setting up... Um, an avenue where it's pitting people against each other and mm. it's a divide-and-conquer tactic. And, yeah. you know, as you and I were discussing just before, Tiffany, it is important, isn't it, for governments to protect health and, and to protect life. And we mm. do need mm. to have a state of emergency, in particular in Victoria. Mm. But we already have a bill. Mm. I mean, mm. sorry, we already have... At measures in place. Um, ability and to, yeah. Cases have yeah. gone down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, look, hopefully, I mean, I think Premier Andrews has already indicated some willingness to talk. Um, he's, he's appreciating there's some pushback um, within both the Liberal Party and the crossbenchers, so I, f I feel pretty confident he'll see and hear reason if, if the argument's presented uh, to him, um, so that you know, I know that there's some good people, you know, working with government to try and convince them that this is not 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 a sensible step forward. Yeah, and and having also, you know, there's already been quite a few young people um, with mental health issues that have died, you know, mm, when police mm. haven't been trained properly. Mm. And then putting weapons into the hands of protective services officers and additional powers can really cause a lot of concern here. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, that's right. 
that's going on in, at the same time. There's, there's separate legislation trying to expand. Oh. Um, yeah, there's um, other legislation that will come up before the upper house at the same time, really just expanding the areas that protective service officers are allowed to exercise their current powers. So it's um, really, in a way, making protective service officers who are also always supposed to be just... Uh, keeping train stations and transit areas safe, now they're basically going to be like a, a second-tier police force in a way, uh, more regularly seen in the community and supporting actual uh, Victorian police members in, in terms of some of their work. So, again, we've been trying to push back on that, that that's not, again, there's no evidence for the need for that. We don't We don't see that there's such a incredible increase in the crime rate or anything to warrant expansion of, you know, um, PSOs out into all areas of Victoria. Um, and so we're sort of saying, no, we just need to, we need to push back on that, um, especially because they are under-trained, uh, much, they're trained much less than a normal police member. Um, they, um, yeah, but they are armed. So we do need to be, you know, very vigilant in that area as well. So is that actually a separate bill, is it? Yeah, it's, um, it is. It's, it's, it was, uh, this, this particular expansion has been on the cards for a while. It's, um, oh. it, it's really unrelated to COVID. It's just uh, something that came through um, the regular community safety statements that the Victorian government releases. And I think within that, they, they've been edging towards PSO has been, um, yeah, uh, their duties sort of been allowed to operate in different different parts. So you've seen them in, um, uh, I suppose, in different sporting events or different things they've been called on. They've definitely been called on to support with COVID, but now we're likely to see them in, you know, more regularly in different um, community spaces and shopping centres and things like that. So I think, yeah, that's. When, okay. yeah, we're struggling with it, but um, that's that's something that government has sort of been edging towards for a little while now, even even pre-COVID. That's really interesting. Thank you for making that distinction, Tiffany. Because oh, sure, okay, no, no, that's, that's a separate bill. So that's okay. right. There's there's two things going on, but we're we're linking the two in a sense because you know if you put put if one if one bill goes through and gets legislated, then that. It, that basically expands where protective service officers can work. And then in addition to that, there's another act that comes in that says that um, PSOs, along with a whole range of other people, uh, authorised officers that can, uh, you know, preventative, in a preventative way detain people because they think they're going to breach a COVID restriction, then it's just, it's just a very um, unfortunate <laughs> mix of the two, isn't it? Like you could see PSO being in an incredibly powerful position with very limited training and um, could could go pear shape. Uh, it, it, absolutely, because let's make it, let's be clear here to listeners that we're not talking about judges or police officers or even public servants. If this mm, still passes, mm. a mm. member of the community could be appointed as an authorised officer with the power to detain. 
So, for example, yeah. you know, we were talking more about how, you know, so so looking at, at what someone might do. So, for example, mm. picturing this scenario, just to summarise, so the yeah. listeners can just have a bit of clarity here, looking at someone who has contracted COVID-19 and is meant to be self-isolating at home or a close contact of COVID-19, and these people, the community members who've had no training at all, can be appointed to to basically dob someone in just for something that they might do. I mean, that sounds mm. like the Patriot Act in America, where you know you, you've you've got a plan, you, like you're making it's like a conspiracy thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's similar to the incitement charge, actually. That that um, police have been using on, on activists and protesters um, in Victoria. Mm. Yeah. I don't know, no, Tiffany. Let's, let's yeah, no, it's disturbing, Marissa. Stuff. I don't know what else to <laughs> say with you at this point, but I think we just all uh, no, no, no. got to but it's, work towards it's about, getting it. Before you go, yeah. before you go, and getting, just as, a, as, yep. a, as a final observation on your part. Yep. Mm-hmm. So with youth law, for example, mm. what, what sort of work will youth law be doing? In, in regards to this bill? Yeah, so look, um, I mean, to be honest, our main focus has been the other bill, the bill relating to expansion of sure. the areas PSOs can work. But obviously, because both bills are coming up at the same time and do have some intersectionality that I've just tried to describe, um, we'll, we'll be meeting with a whole range of crossbenchers and discussing both pieces of legislation and our concerns with them. Um, and we will be, you know, doing some media work around it too, just to let, you know, members of the public and others know. Um, I think that's really, yeah, there are two main avenues I imagine at the moment. Yeah. No, that's yeah. good, and I'm, I'm hoping it, it doesn't encourage racial racial profiling as well. There's so no, many other right. things that... Yeah. Can yeah, let's hope not. Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on no, the program. No, my pleasure, Marissa. It's been a most enlightening discussion. Yeah, no, thanks again for the invite. Lovely to have you. Take care. Okay. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And we're just about out of time. It's goodbye from Marissa. And tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Do and Time show. Thanks to our guests for coming in. Well, not coming in, speaking on the phone. And stay safe, everybody. And we'll be going out now with our theme song, Blackfella, Whitefella by the Rumpy Band and Beyond Zero coming up next. Bye.
Sisters. 